Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right. What's going on, everybody? How are we? Are we good? I am. Glad you're here. Good to see you. All right. Um, Yes, we already did this passage. Yes, we're doing it again. Um, sometimes there's just more, like a lot more, like so much more. And there's things that are contextual, and there is something here that I've been trying to figure out how to teach for a couple of weeks. And so today is going to be a little different, and I'm going to try to sort of give you an understanding of some Jewish context, some stuff that's going on here. Um, and so, oh, first off, um, announcement I forgot to give to them to make. Um, if you're a clinician looking to get involved in the counseling center, the Watermark Counseling Center, uh, meeting is today, 1230. It's going to be just meet at my office right over here, and, and we'll do our thing. Um, and so 1230, I think there's food, so that'll be fun. Um, and so I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to look at some stuff here that, that, uh, that I, am, I, just, I love. I think it's just the most incredibly beautiful stuff. So, so let's pray, shall we? Father. We love you. You're a good, holy, righteous God, and uh, you watch over us, your children, your sheep. You are our shepherd, and you lead us, and you guide us, and so um, we're asking you to shepherd us today. There's a lot of people who come into a place like this carrying very heavy burdens and heavy distractions, and I ask that right now you would push those things aside, allow us to be present with you and your people and uh, speak through me this morning. I ask that the things that I studied, that I would remember them all, and that I would be able to communicate clearly, and that uh, it would fall on the ears of, of people who need to hear exactly what is, what is being said. Um, thank you for this place, for what it means to so many of us. Thank you for the community that you're building, um, for the love and the grace that, that is shown here. And... Uh, the healing that is taking place within these walls and, and in the house church gatherings and, and the relationships throughout the week. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. All right, so there is some language being used here. You know, we're reading a 2,000-year-old letter, and believe it or not, it wasn't written to you. It was written to a particular group of people at a particular point in time from a certain city with a certain cultural lens at which they are looking at everything. And so... There's a lot of things in here that if you were a first century uh, Jew and you read these things, you would say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But today, 
being 2,000 years separated, we just kind of gloss right over. And so when I find them, I like to pull them out and, and make them sort of come to life because within this passage, I mean, we came at it from one angle, which was sort of the emotional aspect of what Paul is going through um, with the criticisms and the change that he's trying to bring to this place. But now um, I'm going to pull out some of the very loaded phrases that he uses. For instance, um, in verse 15 here, where is it right over here? Um, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So there is this very prophetic, if you were a first century Jew and you heard him say, I was, before I was born, God gave me a message to proclaim. What's going to pop in your mind is, well, who, where, else, where, else, where else have I heard this? Well, it's the same thing that Jeremiah said. It's the same thing that Isaiah said. It's the same thing that, that Amos said. Before I was born, God, God called me out and gave me this message to proclaim. God has wanted you to hear this. Um, it speaks to the weight of the message. Sometimes we read these things and we just kind of put them in a doctrine box and say, oh, he's talking about predestination. He's talking about... He's talking about the message of God coming through the prophets. That's what he's talking about. And so there's that. And then there's a few more. So I have in verse 17 here. Um, and he says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here. If you've ever studied any sort of critical um, textual analysis of any of this, um, in the book of Acts, Jesus appear, appears to Paul, and it says he immediately started preaching the gospel throughout the cities. But this passage says that he went to Arabia, which raises other questions, like where's Arabia in the first century? And why would you go to Arabia? And then it says he went back to Damascus. And then if you keep reading a little farther, it actually says he was there for three years. And so what's going on? Why would he say this? What does this mean? Is he delivering a message? Is he saying something deeper that the Jewish audience would understand? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Um, and so then you have more. So you have uh, in, in verse 14, uh, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Extremely zealous was I. Um, so you even heard in verse 13, it says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So you have this zeal, you have this violent sort of tendency that, that Paul had in what he was doing. If you were a first century Jew and you, you heard him talking about violence and talking about zeal and, and being zealous, this is a very weighted phrase. It has a lot of meaning and he's communicating a message to them. So today, I'm going to sort of put you in the mind of a first century Jew the best I can and we're going to sort of walk through this and it's gonna, it involves a lot of drawings. I apologize up front. Um, but, uh, so we're going to start with this one, right? It's a guy putting a spear through two other people. Now, um, this is, hey, I stick figures. I didn't get real pictures, right? Um, so in Numbers chapter 25, there is this story of this guy, Phineas. Um, and Phineas is famous for this one particular thing that he did where there's, there's a time where he was standing around with, you know, the priests and Moses and Aaron and, and they're there and, uh, and they're talking about how the Israelites keep running off to worship Baal. There's several ways you would worship Baal. You would, you would um, take part in the temple prostitution. They had these prostitutes who were like, if you were here in Colossians, I called them priestitutes because they were priests. and that's, that's the name I came up with. I coined it. Um, and uh, you would you'd sort of buy some time with a temple prostitute. And also um, there's different ways. And one of the ways that you would worship these ancient gods is you would sometimes sacrifice a human being. And so... This is not okay. And so there's one episode where Phineas is standing there and he sees this guy, this Israelite man, take a temple prostitute in, 
to a, a Moabite woman into his tent um, with his family, and he's there fornicating with her, and Phineas gets enraged, and he grabs a spear, and he runs into the tent and plunges it through both of them into the dirt. So um, the reason this, this story is important is because it's described, the scriptures describe him as the reason he did this. It calls upon his, his zeal. He did this because of his zeal for God. Now, um, so let's talk about this particular word, zeal. It's, it, it actually has a lot of meaning. Um, it actually literally means red-faced, like when you get really, just really angry, you can, someone, you're talking to somebody and they clench their fists and their face gets red. It's time to stop talking and walk away. Um, and then especially if there's a, a spear nearby. Um, and it also means heat. Like, um, you ever wake up in the middle of the night and which is the best possible time to think of the little jabs that people say to you when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just like, well, that makes, why did they say that? Middle of the night, of course, that's when they pop in your head. And you get all hot, you go, ah, I take the blankets off, and now you're, or you think, my bank account's a little low, I could, I could bounce. You start getting all hot. It's a physical reaction to sort of a mental state that you have, and it's heat. And so this, the idea of zeal is that it's heat, it's red face, it's anger, it's, uh, that's how it describes it. It makes you mad enough to grab a spear and run through a couple people. Um, and so, the idea of zeal sort of started with this guy. And so from this point on, whenever people were really angry, like a lot of the prophets became really angry, um, they would kind of call on, they would say, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling zealous. And it's, a t- it's when you, I just, I want to put my, my fist through a wall. I'm hot, I'm angry, I'm, I'm, I'm all hot and bothered. And, and you want to just put your, put your arm through a wall. You just, you're angry. And so... There's a lot of people in the scriptures who you read who kind of use this language and they kind of point back to this, especially if you follow the Jewish traditions. There's this guy, Elijah. Uh, his, his story is found in 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, and following in the footsteps of Phineas, he claims zeal. And he also becomes very violent in his claim for zeal. And he slays all the prophets of Baal who, again, are taking part in the, 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 you know, the worship in all these different ways. And so it's a, uh, it's a difficult thing to read, and, and you're seeing this, and he's claiming, why are you doing this? Well, I'm zealous for God, and it's sort of this violent rage. It's, the idea is you become very violent and, and hot, and so that's the word they would use to describe it. Now, something interesting happens here with Elijah um, because he's going around slaying the prophets of Baal, and he gets confronted by this man Ahab and his very well-known wife Jezebel, and basically, they threaten his life. And so he's like, my life? I'm here to take other people's lives. And he runs, um, as you do. And so he, there's him. He runs, and he runs into the desert. And he runs into the desert, and God feeds him there miraculously, as the story goes, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. And as he's being fed, he travels to um, a cave in the wilderness. Um, and in this cave he sort of has this incredible experience that changes his view of God. In this cave, um, he's there and he's contemplating. He's being fed by God. By the way, wandering in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, being fed miraculously by God. Stop me if you've heard this before. 40 years in the wilderness with the Israelites. This story repeats itself over and over and over again in scriptures for good reason. We're going to talk about that. Um, So he goes to this cave and he's sitting in this cave and he hears God call his name. And he comes to the edge of the cave, and there is this 
wind, that's wind. There's this tornado or something and it, and it just rips through the rocks and it breaks things and he's, oh, here, this is going to be God because God is powerful and, and violent, right? And this is going to be him and, and, and God does not end the tornado and, or the wind. And then there is, that's an earthquake. Um, then there is this, this violent earthquake. He hears his name, he comes, there's this earthquake. Okay, God's going to speak to me now because, I mean, powerful God's going to use an earthquake, right? He's going to shake stuff up and, and, and God's not in the earthquake. And then what happens? He hears his name again, and he comes to the edge of the cave, and there's this, there's this fire just raging and ripping through the hillside, and it, and it just is causing destruction and reaping havoc, and, and he's listening for the voice of God. Of course God's going to come in fire, right? I mean, God, Moses, and just all these ancient stories of fire, and God's not in the fire. And so his way of thinking about God was absolutely challenged, and he goes back into the cave, and he sits and waits, and he hears his name again, and God calls him and speaks to him, and then he comes to the edge of the cave, and God finally speaks to him in a still, quiet voice. Not in all the ways you would expect him to, with all the power and the raging and the fire. God speaks to him in a still, quiet voice and talks to him about trust, about faith, about following him, about how his ways are a little different. And so after this, um, Elijah leaves, and where does he go? He goes to Damascus. To crown a new king um, over Israel, uh, King Hazael, um, and, he, and he crowns this new guy king, and things he, he takes a totally different route in following God from this point on. Now, um, this scenario of, of of zealous violence replayed over and over and over again in scriptures and outside of scriptures with God's people. If you read the, about the Maccabean martyrs, um, they claimed the zeal model of Elijah and of Phineas. Um, there was uh, one of Jesus' own followers, uh, Simon. He um, he was part of a specific group of of sort of revolutionary Jews who would carry these daggers, long, sort of skinny daggers under their cloak, and they would go into a crowd of people, and they would find like either Roman soldiers or people who were generally oppressing them or pagan priests, and they would pull out the dagger in a crowd full of people and run them through and assassinate them, put it back in, and just disappear in the crowd. They were called the zealots. So this is a tradition. Now, later on in the New Testament, the word kind of changes, and it becomes just um, a passion for God. But up until this point, it was, it was a specific way of talking. And so then you have our current subject, Paul, hot-headed, angry, violent, rounding up Christians full. He's full of zeal. He's rounding up Christians, and he's killing them. And he's laying waste to entire families and generations of Christians throughout the side. If you actually look into the, um, the strain of teaching that this comes through, it's, um, there's this school of, of uh, I believe it's the Shamite school. It, it, it can tell you a lot about Paul and who he studied under, who his rabbis were, and the school of, of thought that he studied in. And uh, this was sort of, from, from being very young, this is what he was taught. And so then, um, I mean, think about it. You have Paul this very strict religious Jewish guy. And then you have, he hears about these Christians. And what's the message of Christianity? Uh, we are forgiven and made right with God by what? The sacrifice of a human being? Sounds a lot like pagan worship of Baal to me. We need to get our sword out and become zealots and start slaying people. And so Paul is traveling on the road to Damascus to round up more Christians and to kill them. And Jesus appears to him on the road. This Jesus who he has been persecuting the followers of, rounding them up and killing them. And Jesus appears to him, 
and just destroys his entire lifetime theology, everything he has ever believed in one moment. I don't know if you can imagine really the weight of this. Everything that you believed to be true turns out was wrong, and you find it all out in one moment. And so what does he do? He does what anyone who felt that they had been called as a prophet would do. He goes into the wilderness. And where does he say he went? Arabia. And what's in Arabia? Now, uh, if you actually flip ahead a little farther, in Galatians chapter 4, verse um, 25, in a, the book we're studying, Paul actually mentions Arabia, and he says, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. So Paul goes to Sinai. He goes back to the beginning, back to the place where it all began, back to where the people wandered and, and were fed by God miraculously in the wilderness. If you're going to start over, you got to start over. And he went back, um, which is interesting to me because you would think that Jesus appearing into him on the road, that he would say, well, I really should find some of Jesus' followers and ask them some questions. I mean, if, if Buddha showed up in the middle of the highway and stopped my car, and appeared to me, I would be really confused and probably go find some Buddhists and ask some questions or something. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, Jesus talked to me. I have to find Jesus' followers. Instead, he says, growing up, I was taught by people all of this stuff, and it all turned out to be wrong. I'm not about to go back to people. And so Paul even says in this book, I did not gain my knowledge from people. I gained it from God. He went to the wilderness. He went to the caves. He went to Sinai, and he sat, and he listened, and he communed with God. He practiced the ancient... Christian art of silence and solitude and submission to God. And he listens. And later on, we find him going three years later to meet the apostles. And what he finds is that the things he learned from God in solitude are the same things that the disciples learned in the presence of Jesus. And so God was still speaking. Very important to understand. And so when he leaves the desert, when he leaves Arabia, Sinai, where does he go? Well, he goes back. God speaks to him. And he goes back to Damascus to crown a new king, Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's likening himself to the ancient prophets. He says, my journey. Why is he doing this? Well, because they were asking a lot of questions about his authority, first off. You know, who are you? Where did you come from? Who taught you about these things? You're not even an apostle. He says, no, I'm not. Um, I didn't learn these things from people. Neither did Elijah. Neither did a lot of the prophets. There was a message that God had for them, and the way he delivered it to them was oftentimes in the wilderness. And this is how they learned. And so this story that we have um, in, in the first chapter of Galatians, he's basically saying, this is where my authority comes from. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from people. The fact is, this is burning inside my chest, and I have to speak it. I was a zealot. God changed me. He turned me into this. And another thing that's really important to understand about this message is that it changes your entire view of God. Um, Paul, when he was a zealot and he's killing people, believed he was doing the work of God. He believed that he was likening himself to God because of the power and the might. So did Elijah. Um, And in the end, what do we find? We find a God that actually likens himself to the people being killed by the zealots. I mean, it was Paul's own pharisaical people that ended up, that, that killed Jesus. 
And so Jesus did not liken himself to the most powerful and the loudest and the strongest and the earth shakers and the wind and the, the fire. He likened himself to the lowest of the low, the victims of the religious leaders in the world. He likened himself to the people who were persecuted and oppressed, and he came in that form. And Paul finds he worships a crucified Savior. And that's a huge deal because that overthrows everything he had ever thought And it undermines everything that the people in the city of Galatia are teaching. Sometimes the ways of God are incredibly confusing. Maybe perhaps you have found this. That it's hard to understand what God is doing when he's doing it. Sometimes um, we come to find out that the way of God is the opposite of how we think things should be. Because we serve a God... And we follow Jesus who tells us, um, if you humble yourself, God's going to lift you up. We follow one who says, uh, it's only by losing your life that you find it. We follow one who says, um, power is shown in, in weakness. It's not found in the sword of the Roman Empire. It's found in the cross of those who the Roman Empire is out to destroy. And so the ways of God are, are so confusing. Oftentimes you, you, are, you are given a set of options and the one that obviously would be the best for you and the most maybe financially um, profitable or whatever is this particular way. Um, but, but then you see scriptures tell you, and you're a follower of Jesus, and Jesus tells you this other way is the way you're supposed to go. Um, but it seems like if you went that way, it would hurt a lot more. And it doesn't seem like God would want to do that. I mean, doesn't God want to show his power through me? or He wouldn't want me to suffer, Right? And so oftentimes, choosing the way that we see is best is oftentimes against exactly what God is doing and, and how God has traditionally worked in the world. Sometimes honesty, though the consequences of being honest will be brutal, is God's way towards your flourishing. Sometimes um, being generous and giving it all away is God's path towards giving it to you. Sometimes sacrificing for peace is the path towards winning the war, whatever war you are fighting in your lives individually and as a people. It doesn't make sense. And you say, well, if we did that, this would happen and that would be terrible. Yeah, our Savior could be crucified and that would never work out right, would it? And so the cross tells us that God's way of winning is to stop the fighting and lay yourselves down for others. Um, so there's a there's a really a really great song by Gunger on the new. I don't know if you're like listening to Gunger, but there's there's a song on his new record who uh, where he, he kind of says uh, if it's us or them, then it's us for them as followers of Jesus. If it's I love that I I, I love the the connotation there. And so. There's another conversation that needs to be had here that the ancient people would understand, a conversation about entering into the wilderness. Um, if you would ask a lot of people today, how do you hear from God? You're going to get answers that they, they usually say something like, I go to the scriptures, I go to worship, I go to a church gathering, I go meet with elders or pastors, I, I go, when I want to hear from God, I spend time in silence and I listen and I pray. Um, when I want to hear from God, I read um, I practice spiritual disciplines. And we have these motions and actions that we do. Um, if you were to ask an ancient first century Jew, where do you go to hear from God? There was only one answer. 
they would go to the wilderness, which is a bizarre answer. Um, so the word, for, I think, to understand this, we, had, we, need, we need to look at how they viewed the wilderness. So the word, ancient Jewish word for wilderness, it, it looks kind of like this, uh, and it's pronounced midbar. Everyone say midbar. midbar. Very good. Um, now, uh, this is, again, this is their word for the wilderness. Um, and this is, this is perfect. I love this. Um, there's, there's actually, if you were, the, the literal translation of the word midbar means the place of speaking. So if you were to ask your friend, hey, where are you going? Um, and he said, I'm going to the wilderness. You would actually, if, if this, all things considered were equal and we were Hebrew, you'd say, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm, I'm going to the place of speaking. Okay. You would know, I'm not going to go with you. You need to go by yourself. You're going to go hear from God. So the little, the, the, the land that was the wilderness, the place where Sinai was, Arabia, all this, this was, it was called the place of speaking. When you wanted to hear from God, you got your pack, you ventured out into the wilderness. You see this over and over and over again, all through scriptures. Um, the desert is the place, the wilderness is the place where you cannot survive apart from the direct intervention of God. You see this in the story of the Israelites, the, the manna from heaven, the food, and all of the stories that are told in the Hebrew scriptures talk about the desert as the place where God provides everything you need from Elijah to the Israelites, um, water coming out of rocks, just all of this. The stories that they tell command the people to understand that um, it is when we have no reliance upon ourselves when we actually find God. We have no way to take care of ourselves. That if, if there's no food, if God doesn't provide food, we don't eat. If God doesn't provide water, we die of dehydration. If God doesn't speak, we don't hear from anyone. So the desert, the wilderness, that's, that's what this is. It's where you can, where you learn that you cannot live without God. So, now the root of this word midbar, um, there's three, there's three particular consonants that are used. Um, it, in English it would be like the DBR, like Dabir. And so from this, from these three, like from this root Dabir, you get the word midbar. You also get, um, another word, um, that word is Dabar, which means sheepfold, which is perfect because in the sheepfold, I mean, God's regularly called our shepherd, right? And we're called his sheep. And what happens in the sheepfold? That's where the shepherd tends for the sheep. That's where he shears them and he, he, he patches their wounds and he feeds them and he protects them and he gives them shelter, locks the gate and protects. And um, he sings songs to them. And this is, he, he just stays with them, spends the night there with them and, and, and assures them that they are safe and that they can rest. Okay. And so the, the root word of the wilderness is also the word for sheepfold. So when the shepherd is tending for the sheep, he is actually experiencing a little bit of what it is like to do the work that God does for us. And as they tend for the sheep, they think of, deep down inside, of God speaking to them. And as they tend the sheep, they think of God tending them. Now, there's one more word that is, that is used here. So we have midbar, we have debar, and then we have one more word. It's, it's debir, and it means... The Holy of Holies, and this is the best, because the Holy of Holies was the one place in the center of the temple of the Jewish people where it was the one place in the world where God was actually present. It was where there was this room on planet Earth where heaven and earth are just, the lines are blurred and God is just there. And so wrapped up in the idea of going into the wilderness to hear God speak, I, I, need, I need the shepherd to speak to me. I need the shepherd to tend to me, to lead me. 
I need to meet with God. I need to hear God speak. So why is this important? This all plays directly into the story over and over and over again that you see in the scriptures of the Israelites. It plays directly into what Paul is talking about here, how he became an apostle, um, how he get, came to the conclusion of this message, the gospel of Christ that he has for them, the message of healing. Um, and this is really important to us because today, in our day, in this generation, this younger generation, we have a lot who have sort of, they're sort of in this wilderness, they're in this desert. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've had this crisis. However it looks. Um, you were raised sort of like Paul, thinking one way, being groomed one way by people, and now you've entered into a world that you have been prepared for and that world no longer exists. And your faith doesn't make sense you're in a faith crisis and you're wandering and you're lost and, and you're in an emotional crisis and a social crisis. You, you, you just, you're, you're a bit like a spiritual refugee, if you will, wandering. Um, and like Paul, maybe when you were younger, you were really zealous for these certain methods of, of knowing and proclaiming things. Um, but now having set out on your own and, and you're hearing things and you're reading things and you're coming into adulthood and you've been confronted by something which you never imagined and the rug has been pulled out and now things just don't make as much sense as they used to. And again, like Paul, you're kind of a spiritual refugee. You're wandering, you're reading, you're listening, you're searching. You're looking for a new lens through which you can look at the world in a way which Jesus makes more sense than he does now. I would like to actually be the first to welcome you to the wilderness. I, I want you to know, if you read the scriptures, the wilderness, the journey into the wilderness is the most important journey you can take. And throughout scriptures, when God's people head into the wilderness, that is where they, they gain a new king. Because oftentimes what led you into that wilderness was the fact that something else was your king that was not Jesus. And that thing needs to be destroyed and taken apart. And it is when it all has been stripped away that you can finally, finally hear from God. It's where only God can feed you. Only God can really speak new life into you. I mean, let me ask you a question. When things were great, when everything made sense, when everything was just this perfect perfect math, math equation in life and everything was just, it just all made sense before you met different kinds of people and heard different things, when it all made sense, were you really hearing from God at all? Or were you just doing a lot of talking? Were you at all really paying attention? Were you taking time and having silence and solitude? Because I'll, I'll be honest, I wasn't when I was pretty young. I talked a lot and I listened very little. And I came to realize all of these different idols that I had built up in my mind and in my heart. That stuff will destroy you. It needs to be taken apart. And I tended to have this idea that, yeah, God was in the fire and the earthquake and the, just the, the rage of it all. But he's not. He likens himself. He's the crucified Savior. And so when we venture into the wilderness, we actually experience time with God and we come to see what this is about. Um, most likely, when you hear a really good, inspiring story, and also, all stories kind of go the same, don't they? They, they kind of, I was here... And then I, I, I just, this thing happened and I came out the other side and, and, and now I have this, whatever that is. Um, the change only ever happens in the story. 
when there's a line that kind of goes like this, um, and I, and I was down to my last $5 and I spent it and I didn't know what to do next. Or, and I was sitting on the couch watching TV at 10.30 at night and there was a knock on the door and I answered it and there was two police officers standing there and they said, are you so-and-so? And then suddenly everything in my life changed. Or, um, and then my doctor called and said, I need you to come in. We got to talk to you about these test results. Or, um, however it looks. There's a million different ways that that story goes. But you know what I never hear? I never hear anyone say, well, I was swinging in a hammock under two palm trees drinking something awesome from a coconut, and that's when things really changed. (laughs) That's when it all made sense. It was when I was cruising down Malibu in my Tesla, (laughs) and I just came to realize, oh, man, it all makes sense now. No, it never makes sense at that point in time. Because you're all consumed with yourself. What did Jesus, t- I mean, what, what, did, what did God tell the Israelite people? He said, when you're in the desert, I'm feeding you, I'm taking care of you. There's going to come a time where you're going to move into houses you didn't build, you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig, you're going to eat uh, grapes that, from vineyards that you didn't plant, and you're going to have all this stuff. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to forget about me. And they say, no, we won't, no, we won't. You're in the desert right now, you need me. You cannot forget about me here. When you get there, you're going to forget about me. And they did. Over and over and over. The journey into the desert has always been the most integral part of the faith journey. It's the dark night of the soul, right? That's what it's been called. It's the place where you understand all, all of it is just kind of stripped away. It's what, it's what the monks find. We tend to find happiness in adding more and more stuff, reading more books, adding information. You know what the monks were doing? They were giving it all away. They're like, it's when I gave it all away that I really found that I really found what all this is about. And then you can t- receive stuff back and, 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 and keep it in the right sort of posture in your life. Um, but what we see throughout scriptures is that there is this journey of God working in our lives where we look at him one way and then he leads us into the desert. I mean, there's two types of wisdom, right? So you have this book. Um, if, if you're like me, then like every day you kind of read one of the Proverbs. There's 31 chapters, and a lot of months are right around 31 days. Uh, and so you kind of read a chapter of Proverbs a day, whatever sort of coincides with whatever day of the week it is. Yeah. And, and so you, you do this, and, and so this is the Proverbs wisdom, right? And the general idea is there's a lot of amazing wisdom in there. And you read this wisdom, and if you live by it, things tend to go pretty well, right? You have, you have healthy relationships, healthy boundaries with people. You learn to love God more. You learn to, like, reject kind of stuff. And you learn what really life is about And when you live this way. Um, and so there's the wisdom of Proverbs, but actually there's, um, so there's wisdom and then there's actually a, sort of another form of wisdom where you do everything right and things still go awful and really, really bad. And there still comes a day when things don't make sense. And there still comes a day when the rug is pulled out from under you and you have no idea where to go, what to do. And like Paul, you're just stunned and you don't know who to talk to, who to ask. There's nobody. And so there's the wisdom of Proverbs, and then there's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, right? There's two wisdom books. There's wisdom, and then there's wisdom. Everything went bad. It was supposed to go this way. Me and God had a deal. I was going to live really moral, and and everything was going to go great, right? And it didn't. Okay, so now we understand human human stuff it's it's vanity i did all these things and i didn't find happiness in any of it and where did i find in the end love god and keep his commandments 
And so there's this whole other form of wisdom. And it can't be found unless you spend some time in Arabia. Not literally. (laughs) Right now that'll teach you something. Um, But it's the journey that God has. And so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep talking for a second, but I want the communion servers. Why don't you guys go ahead, the communion servers, and, uh, and prepare the elements for us. Um, as I lead us into communion, I'm going to come at this from a different angle. I, I kind of want to ask you the question. Um, I want to kind of ask you about your journey. I mean, a lot of our journeys kind of go this way. The rug is pulled out. We go through the trial. We find out God is actually a lot different than we thought he was. And we come out the other side with a new king. A new way. He just, he's on the throne now. And he wasn't before. Something else was. But now it's, now it's Jesus. Um, but I kind of want to ask you, why are you here today? What did you come seeking? Are you, are you lost? Are you, I mean, do things no longer make sense? Do you have more questions than answers now? Um, are you in crisis? Have you torn kind of everything down and just looking for solid ground and you're not finding it? Have you sort of become a spiritual refugee looking for a new place to land? Well, here in our community, we believe the answers to all these questions are found in the Eucharist. Um, the Eucharist, the, the, the broken bread and the poured out wine and the glass. It's the symbol that Jesus was poured out for you, that his body was broken, his blood was spilled in this sheer act of love. And this is why this is important because there's a lot who, a lot here who might feel unloved for whatever reason. You feel like you are not fully loved. The Eucharist tells you that you are. You are so loved that someone poured themselves out their entire life for you. Um, The Eucharist tells us that Jesus came to give understanding to those who feel unheard, unnoticed, forsaken. Maybe you feel like you don't have a voice, you don't feel respected, you feel like there's nobody who fully understands you. Um, God had such a desire to fully understand us that he became one of us. And it's funny, through scriptures you see a God who's, who's he, at first he appears really far away and he's like, I'm in a tabernacle with you. And then this changes and he becomes a person and he's walking around and what's Jesus doing? He's just He's always touching people. It's like he can't get close enough, right? Um, the Eucharist also tells us that Jesus likened himself to the oppressed. Maybe you were here and you feel oppressed for whatever reason. You were going through something. Someone else is forcing you down, just forcing something upon you, and you feel like there is no one who understands and there's no way out. Jesus absolutely fully understands being birthed into the Roman Empire by as, as a, a first-century Jewish man, who eventually was killed by his own Jewish people. He understands what it means to be oppressed. And he came to show you that, that he likens himself with you and to lead you out of it. Um, he came to give you a home and a community to all those who were lost and wandering. That, those are just, that's just a smidgen of what the Eucharist actually means. And so our, our communion servers, you guys can spread around the room. Um, and whatever God has for you, I believe it is found in the Eucharist, the good gift. That all of life is a gift. Every moment that you're breathing is a gift. Every morning you wake up is a gift given to you by a just and merciful and forgiving God who wants to change your view of him every single day. 
And so we're going to take some time in communion, and, uh, and then we're going to respond with one more song. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are good. You are holy. You are righteous. Change us, lead us, guide us, take from us what needs to be taken, give us what needs to be given, um, and make yourself our King, the Lord of our lives. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.